Today, uh, we're going to continue in the Gospel of John. As I was writing this uh, sermon, I remembered a time when I went into one of my favorite stores. I'm sure you all have your favorite stores that you like to go into. And sometimes it's probably wise not to go into those stores with money. <laughs> we may have a tendency to uh, not control ourselves. But the store, one of the stores that's one of my favorites is Home Depot. Um, I'm sure you've probably been there for something. Um, but have you ever gone into uh, the wrong door at Home Depot? You ever know how that feels, going into the wrong door? The security is high, so be aware. Well, I remember one day I tried to go into the first door I seen because I did not want to have to walk 10 blocks to the other door. And so as I walked into the store, there was a register door-watching lady who was on high alert, and she would not let me in. I tried. I mean, technically, I was already in the store. I was in, I was through the doors. Uh, but still, she would not allow me in. She could have allowed me to stay, but all I heard was, no, sir. And I'm like, come on. I'm right here. I'm right here. I'm, 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 my owl is, is right there where I need to get my things. But she said, no, sir, you have to go to the other door. It was her mission to guard the door to make sure no one comes in that way. It was the exit door. And so you probably have done that before. Isn't that frustrating having to go to the other door on the other side of the building? But the truth is, in life, there is a right and wrong way of doing things, even when we don't like the way it makes us feel. And the same is true about our relationship with God. There's a right and wrong way to have relationship with God. We, we don't determine how that happens. We've been given that information through the word of God. He's spoken to us. The scripture says, all scripture is given by the inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that all might be able to do that which is pleasing and honorable to God. And that's a practice, that the man of God might be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so the word of God helps us in our relationship with God. And so 
He's given us the method in which we can and cannot enter his kingdom. In our text, the Lord demonstrates this by recognizing the characteristics of three different kinds of individuals. So if you would, let's now turn our attention to the text this afternoon. Turn with me to John chapter 10, and we're going to pick up where we left off. We're going to begin at verse 7. Begin at verse 7 instead of verse 8, just to um, continue with our context. John chapter 10, beginning at verse 7. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hard hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hard hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I, might, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your incredible word. We thank you because it is by your word that we are able to be transformed. We're able to have our minds renewed. We're able to be guided and led. We're able to understand and to comprehend the things of God. We're able to come to know you better. And we pray that with our understanding, it would lead to obedience. And so we pray that you would help us. We pray that you would change us. We pray that you would motivate us. 
we pray that you would convict us. And Lord, wherever there is a need for us to repent, wherever there is a need for us to confess sin, we pray that you would make that clear. And we pray that there would be a desire that would overcome us, that we would only want to do that which pleases you and honors you. We pray that you would help us now, that we might die to self, that we might live for the Christ. Lord God, have your way, for you are the good shepherd. Shepherd us, O God. We are your sheep. Have your way. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've entitled the sermon, The Good Shepherd and the Sheep. I have three points. They're going to be several points or emphasis underneath these three points. Um, particularly under point number one, we're going to be listing some characteristics. Point number one is the Good Shepherd's characteristics. So in other words, we can identify who is the good shepherd and what does the good shepherd do? So the good shepherd's characteristics, point number one, point number two, point number two the big contrast. The big contrast. And point number three, the big challenge. The big challenge. So we have the characteristics, we have the contrast, we have the challenge. And I'm going to mix it up a little bit, but I'll, I'll guide you along the way. And in, um, in um, well, I'm going to begin with just a little in, brief introduction. Uh, in verses 1 through 6, Jesus started this section with a metaphor to illustrate his mission on earth by describing the wrong and the right way of entering the sheepfold. The wrong way to enter the sheepfold is to climb over the wall. The right way to enter the sheepfold is by entering through the gate. You might think of a sheepfold fold or a pin, if you would, there's a, there's a gate. You're going to see the Lord also describe this. You might have in your translation the door, right? But, but what it points to is this idea of entering in, exiting out, right? So we're going to see in verses 7 through 8, he's going to move from this idea of the gate a little bit and give some meaning behind it. So in verses 7 through 18, the Lord himself, and he's doing all of the talking. Okay? At least that's what John seems to indicate. So the Lord is speaking. He's giving the meaning of the metaphor he just used to describe two different ways of entering a sheepfold. So to understand the meaning of the illustration explained by the Lord, we should consider the kinds of individuals the Lord recognized 
and their characteristics. So first, he begins with himself, right? And so he's going to describe in verses 10, I mean, in, in verses 7, 9, 10b, 11, uh, 14 uh, through 18. He's describing these characteristics, and I'll kind of list them as I go. So, the good shepherd's characteristics. So, earlier, Jesus had emphasized the leadership role of the true shepherd, talked about that on last week, as the one who comes through the, through the door. Now, he shifts and explains in further detail the characteristics of himself as the good shepherd. And in describing himself this way, the Lord explains that he's the ultimate means for salvation in using, once again, the I am statement. Remember, not too long ago in chapter 6, he described himself using the I am when he said, I am the bread of life, right? Which, again, points to his divine authority because the Jews know that that's language they heard from their descendants from when they were in Egypt and the Lord brought them out through the Red Sea. But remember, Moses said to the Lord, when I go to them, who should I say sent me? And remember, the Lord say, you are to say that the I am sent you. So they're very familiar with this I am statement. And so they're going to become offended because they know that the Lord is claiming divine authority. And it makes sense because people often said when they heard the Lord speak, did not our hearts burn within as he spoke to us the word of God? We've never heard anyone speak like this before. The Lord spoke with authority. And so he's continuing again using the, these I am statements here, which, which has a lot of value, has a lot of power. And so uh, we, we see this when he says in John 35, that idea of I am the bread of life. And, and the verse goes on to say in, in, in 625, um, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Do, do you see this idea of dependence? This idea of need, this idea that I am God and you can't do anything apart from me. Right? So he says, I am your sustenance. I am everything you need for life. You can't live apart from me. I am your sustenance. I am your breath. I am everything that you need. But he says, if you come to me, you'll be satisfied, right? So he says there, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, right? We eat physical bread. We're hungry again in five minutes, right? But, but, but the Lord says this kind of bread, this spiritual bread, you're going to be full. You're not going to hum hunger. 
Then he goes on to say, whoever believes in me should never thirst. In other words, when I get done with you and fulfilling you, you're not going to need anything because you're going to be satisfied if you trust in me, if you rely in me. So that means the job, he says, rely upon me. Yes, fill out the application, but trust me about the job. Trust me about the raise. Trust me about what's going on in the home. Trust me about disobedient children. Trust me. I am your bread. I am your sustenance. So Jesus is trying to show them who he is by giving them the best explanation using metaphors. We like a good story. We, we can see grown men and women crossing their legs to hear a good story because we can relate to it. It's relatable. We can almost see ourselves in the story. We say things like, I, I feel you, I feel you, I feel you, I feel you. Right? We're just saying we can relate to what you're saying. And so often the Lord will use these metaphors so that people could understand. So we see in verse 7 when Jesus refers to himself as the door of the sheep, they can relate to that. Right? Everywhere they look in their culture, they see shepherds with their sheep. They're guiding them and directing them. So that's real relatable. It's really relatable. And so he uses this metaphor in verse 7 when he says, I am the door of the sheep. Look at verse 7 again. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. It, it makes you wonder what Jesus did. It, it makes you wonder what claims did Jesus make here? What, what is he claiming? Well, I believe he's stating that he's the door of the sheep that points to this idea of a salvation. Right? So Jesus wants his listeners to know that it is not through bloodline that people are saved. Instead, he wants them to know that he is the only way to eternal life. So here, what we see again is the exclusivity of Christ as the shepherd and the Savior. Shepherd and Savior. And to make his statement stronger, he emphasized his claims as being the truth by saying, Truly, truly, I say to you. Right? It's kind of like somebody say, hear me out. Hear me out. Right? In other words, we're putting our name on it. We're saying this is deep. This is important. Un understand what I'm trying to say. Right? So, so here he says, truly, truly, using his authority as well, I say to you. So the Lord placed a personal emphasis to show ownership of his claims. In order to come into the sheepfold, one must come in by the way that Christ provides. Right? 
right there, Solus Christus, Christ alone. There, there is no other way. Christ alone. And that's the emphasis that he's placing here. I am the way. Come through me. I am the door. The blind man was thrown out of the synagogue, right? But he was led into the sheepfold, right? And if we're going to be in Christ, we can say like the blind man, throw me out then. If I'm going to be with the Savior, kick me out then. Let me be spending eternity with Christ forever. I don't mind being talked about because the master was talked about. I don't mind being ridiculed because the master was ridiculed. And he says in his word that if he was persecuted, if the teacher is persecuted, why not the student? If we are his disciples, if we're following Christ, then we're denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following him. So, that man came out the synagogue, but he was given access to God. You can be in a, a building, an edifice like this. It doesn't mean nothing if God is not here with us. Right? And we can worship God outside of the four walls. We're to worship God together corporately, one with another because of our faith in him. It's our faith that connects us, that binds us. It is who we are in Christ. And so we too have access to God. And what a beautiful thing it is that even when the storms tear down the wall, we, we don't have to worry about that because our God is everywhere, all at the same time. There is no inch of space that he does not take up. He's God everywhere, all at the same time. Romans 5, 1 and 2 states it like this. I Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Same thing the Lord was saying to me. Right? The text goes on to say in verse 2 of Romans 5, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace. Again, showing that it is not works, that brings us into a right relationship with God. It's nothing that we do, but rather it's what we believe. And it is through believing that leads to obedience. It's what we know that leads to obedience. It leads to our motivations that lead to obedience. And so our minds must be renewed, must be changed. And in order, that for, in order for that to happen, one must be born again. And since we have, we're able to enter into the presence of God. We have access. Text goes on to say, we have peace with God through our Lord. Through him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. 
And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So this authenticates the words of Christ and reassures us of the hope we have in him and not in ourselves. So that means it doesn't matter what's going on in the world. Because God is controlling according to his plan and purposes, his providence, he's allowing things to happen, but he's decreeing things to happen all at the same time. And nothing catches him off guard. It's as if my wife does this very well. She can take some leftovers and make you kill yourself in eating the meal because it's so good. And you're like, what is this? Oh, it's just something I threw together, you know? I mean, that's just her, her gift. She's able to put some things together and make it taste good, and it don't naturally supposed to be together. And God, our creator, is like that. He the one that flung the stars. He the one that said, let there be. Right. When, when we saw beauty. Right. Adam was able to relate because he said, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He said, wow. Wow. She's mine, too. Right. And so we see God exercising his beauty and he does it even in salvation, because by his grace, we are saved and we don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. And so we see this picture here uh, that authenticates the words of Christ. And while he was teaching his disciples, he said in John 16:33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Don't go looking for it somewhere else. The job ought not what gives you peace. Your husband, your wife ought not be the ultimate ones that give you peace. Your bank account, your future, that ought not to be the things you're seeking to get peace out of. Peace begins with God because he's in control over all things. And here's why he says it. He says, in the world you will find tribulation guaranteed. You're going to have trouble. Here's how you prepare yourself, he says, but take heart. Motivate yourself. How? For me. Because I am peace. And I have overcome the world. Even death itself cannot hold me. I've overcome it. We're to embrace the peace that God has provided. That's what a good shepherd does. He brings the sheepfold to the waters that are not disturbed so that they might drink peacefully. Because if the waters get ruffled, they run, they're afraid. They don't know what's going on. And so the good shepherd brings them to the water that is peaceful. They drink and they lie down with a lot of worry in the world because they believe the shepherd. God wants us to have this attitude. He wants us to nurture this attitude. He wants us to practice this attitude. But we must know who he is. 
If we don't know who he is, we can't have this peace. We must continue in getting to know the good shepherd. Not only is Jesus the door to salvation, but he's the provider of abundant life. We see this in verses 9 and 10b. Look at verse, look at John 10, 9 again. The Lord states, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Right? Then in 10, 10b, right, he states, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So in these verses, it clearly states that Jesus offers special privileges to those who places faith in him. And the one, one of the benefits of being in Christ is that one is saved from being dominated by sin and death. And also, we are kept from hell throughout all eternity. So Jesus promises a secure home where thieves can't break in and steal. And so notice the condition that Jesus places his offer. If anyone enters by me. In other words, the door can't swing unless it's on the hinge. And he's saying, I am the hinge. I am the hinge. Nothing can happen unless it comes through me. I am the entry point. I am access. And so he makes that clear. The special privileges are clear because he's the one that is promising this. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, right? And will go in and out and find pasture. Be, be satisfied. This is the abundant life, right? The abundant life that Jesus has offered everyone who believes. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, by the scripture alone, in Christ alone, for his glory alone. So when Jesus offers salvation, he's providing for us all of our spiritual and emotional needs. He's providing everything. His offer is the abundant life, the only life that will satisfy us. So everything in this world will leave us empty and starved, wanting more, right? But not the Lord. He will never leave you nor forsake you, right? The word abundant is perizo in the Greek, and perizo means beyond. Right? This is the kind of thing that God wants to do for his children. He, he wants to bless you beyond. He wants to perizzle you. It means far more. It means greater. It means surplus. In other words, God wants to bless his people exceedingly. And beyond whatever we can imagine. But you know what everyone, what everyone here must do is that we must do it for ourselves. We must 
receive the Lord Jesus for ourselves. Young people, you can't enter the kingdom of God based on what mama did or what daddy did. You have to receive him for yourself. You have to believe him for yourself, that he died for you, for your sins, for your downfalls and inaccuracies, for any ugliness that you're ashamed of. Christ, when he died, he died for all of it. What he requires is believing in him as the good shepherd, the one who saves, and you would be saved and you would become one of the sheep in the sheepfold, protected, provided for, guided, led, directed. There's a lot of benefits from coming to know Christ. But one of the ultimate benefits is not going to hell. It protects you from his wrath, his justice. Why? Because he poured it out on his son. When his son went to the cross, it was for the downfalls and the sins that we have committed against God. And that means a life of sin. From the time you were born all the way till you die. We're going to have to account for every wrongdoing we've ever done. That's the bad news. Now, the bad news continues. If we fail to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if we walk away, because that's an answer. You've given the Lord an answer. Walking away from him is an answer. No, thank you. But that leads to separation from God forever. That's the bad news. Now, the good news is Christ has come to live the perfect life, a life that is acceptable to the Father, a life we could not provide. And not only did he provide the righteousness we need to enter the kingdom of God, he imputed that to us. He took our transgressions, died on the cross for it so that we might have new life in Christ. And he said, all we have to do is believe in him. And all of that righteousness that Christ have done will be transferred into your account. Right now, if we go to the Lord on our own, apart from Christ, it says insufficient funds. You have nothing in your bank account that would be sufficient enough to be able to enter God's kingdom. But if we receive Christ, his mercy his grace. The scripture says he's rich in mercy. In other words, his account is so large and so big, we can never do anything that will separate us from the love of Christ. In other words, you will own everything that he has. You will become family. You will be adopted into the family of God, having all rights and privileges solely on the basis of what Christ did for you. And all you have to do is believe. That's why he says, I'm the good shepherd. Because why? I'm willing to lay down my life for the sheep. And that's what he did in verse 11 that tells us of that. Because of his divine provision, we are forgiven and redeemed by his shed blood. Jesus paid the ultimate sacrifice for sin. In other words, he was willing to lay down his life for the sheep. In verse 11, the Lord 
Jesus states, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In this verse, Jesus discusses how he loved his people by dying for them. In other words, you want to know how much I love you? You want to know how much I love you? I want to die for you. I'm going to do what you can't do for yourself. And that's what he did. And so that allowed those who were before Christ, who were looking forward to the Messiah, they exercised faith in him. He came and died. We look back to Christ and what he have done. And so faith begins to be the means by which God saves those who trusted in his coming, who trusted in his work when he would go to the cross and be the mediator between man and God. So he laid down his life for the sheep. Those that are in Christ have the great blessing that goes far beyond this world and everything we could ever imagine. Right? We're not enjoying enough our positions in Christ. We're not thinking enough about who we are and what he have done for us. The more we think about the after party, the more excited we're going to be. We must know that we already won the game. We're just going through the motions. And what I mean by that is we're being obedient to God and we're taking off of the old man and we're putting on Christ the more. And we're getting ready for the grooming. And you know how the bride does. She dresses and adorns herself with everything that will bring out her beauty. And that's what the church ought to be doing. We're going to be getting rid of anything that will cause division or disunity. Why? Because we want to adorn ourselves because the groom is coming. And so... We want to make sure that we're seeing ourselves in the right light. You know, we, we might have been someone who was unacceptable to others, to the world. But God sees you as beautiful. He sees us as lovely. But we must live like that. So, this is a profound love. For when you have heard ever of someone who was willing to die for their enemies, right? Jesus did. The good shepherd died for his sheep and he gave up his life voluntarily. He gave it up freely for the sake of saving his people. He essentially paid the ransom with his own life for the life of all those who would place faith in him. A.W. Pink states it like this. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. This is one of the many scriptures which clearly and definitely defines both the nature and extent of the atonement. The Savior gave his life, not as a martyr for the truth, not as a moral example of self-service, but for a people, for a people. He died that they might live. 
he says. By nature, his people are, are dead in trespasses and sins and had not the divinely appointed, divine provided, substitute died for them. There had been no spiritual or eternal life for them. We would be stuck. But God in his love cares and was gracious to us, his people. To describe Christ as the good shepherd, he used the word, the Greek word, telos, which means good. But, but John went a little further because this word good we have in our English translation trans, translate in the Greek to mean beautiful. It's as if John just, I don't know how to, it's just, it's just beautiful what he's done. The shepherd is, he's beautiful. And so John gets lost and his word that he came up with to describe the good shepherd was good. And so we could translate it, I am the beautiful shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. So in the apostle John's mind, he remembers Jesus as the beautiful shepherd moving forward to the to the next characteristic of the good shepherd. Jesus states, I am the good shepherd. I know my own. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. In other words, the good shepherd has a unique relationship with the sheep. And we, we, we have that here, right? It's something different that people who you wake up with, right? Y'all have a different relationship, Right? Than, than people out in the world, right? So we know when, when kids run up to us with, you know, morning breath, hey, daddy, <laughs> right? But you love them, though, so it doesn't matter, right? So, so what I'm saying is that there's an intimacy that, that if you would, is given some allowance that is unusual, that is unique. And in the same way, when we come to know Christ, it's a unique relationship with the sheep. But what kind is it? Is it distant? Is there agreement? Is it founded upon love? What kind is it? In this case, the good shepherd has an intimate relationship with the sheep. In other words, the good shepherd has a deep personal relationship with his sheep. And this recognition between the good shepherd and the sheep is mutually understood. Right? It's as almost as if you can anticipate each other's moods. Right? It, it's relational. It's unique. It grows. It continues to grow. In other words, what I'm trying to say is there, there's an understanding between uh, the two. Therefore, because there's an understanding, we must be all in when it comes to acknowledging the good shepherd and his sheep. And this is an ongoing work. This is our sanctification. It's something we must work on. 
If we want things to be better, we know that it's not because God is not doing what he said he's going to do. It's always us. And so we need to be looking. We need to be pondering about what we can change. We need to be thinking about the word of God. What does it say? How can I apply it? Right? Because I do know the word of God is effective. His word don't return to him void. Right? So therefore, I can have a certain amount of anticipation and expectation. Right? Because of what God says. When we have an intimate relationship with him, he loves us. He loves us. And that's the beauty of being in relationship with God, the good shepherd. And so um, we must be all in. We must continue to work on ourselves by being faithful to the Lord. Next, we're going to examine how the good shepherd relates to the father. He relates to the father by submitting to the father. We see that in verses 15 through 18. Take a look there, if you would. In verse uh, 15, the Lord says, Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. So the good shepherd knows the Father, and the Father knows. In other words, there is an intimate relationship in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He, the, the Lord Jesus only wants to do that which pleases God. And that's the trajectory we should be wanting. We want to be on that trajectory where we only want to do that which pleases God. Where the things that are not in step with God, it ought to bother us. I'm sorry, I can't go. I know what's there. I know what it represents. Right? These are the kinds of things we ought to be saying with our unbelieving, ungodly friends. If we do go with them, we must have a plan. Or we're going to get swept up and caught up. And then what happens is we lose our ability to share the gospel with them because they don't trust us anymore. Because we've sinned just like they have right before their eyes. So we lose this great opportunity, so we must be aware. And verse 16 uh, says, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. This is the kind of thinking we want to have too as well. One flock, one shepherd. He says, other sheep that are not of this fold. So initially, Jesus was ministering to the Jewish people. He was ministering to the fold representing Judaism, bringing the word there. However, he is indicating that his mission extends beyond the Jewish community. Right? He says, I must bring them also. Jesus is expressing his intention to gather and include those who are not a part of the Jewish tradition into his fold, into his followers, those who follow Christ. Right? But as long as we're coming in through him, we can come in 
But what is the emphasis? One flock, one shepherd. And so th- th- this reminds us that Jesus uh, underscores the unity that he intends to bring, to establish among his followers, regardless of their background, regardless of their race, regardless of their differences. He's saying, I'm the reason that everyone is going to come together. I'm the one that's going to unify people all over the world. So we must keep our focus on him and and not allow trivial matters to be able to divide us. We must focus on him. He says, I must bring them also. One flock, one shepherd. And that's, that's the point that the Lord wants to make, that he's going to be, it's a reflection of the idea that all believers, Jews and Gentiles, will be united under his guidance, under the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then we see in, in verse 16 also that he's emphasizing this universality of Jesus' mission, right? Where people from all backgrounds and nations are invited to be a part of this one flock. And so again, it points to the inclusive nature of Christ. And God's plan to gather his people from all corners of the world. And then we see the the next characteristic is is that the good shepherd is loved by his father. We see that in verse 17. For this reason, the father loves me because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. Obeying the father leads to the father loving him. We do it with our children. We're so satisfied when we see our children do exactly what we've asked them to do on first command. It's beautiful, right? And it's even a picture of our relationship with God, right? The fact that our children are obeying us and we are fallen parents. We fail often. And to see that is just beautiful. And it points us to the kindness and love of God. That despite our failures and and despite that he knows everything that we ever do or even think about. And yet he loves us. And yet he loves us. What 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 a God. What a mighty God. What a loving, what a beautiful God. And not only that, he has the power from the Father to lay down his life and to pick it up again. Right? Um, So, in verse 18, it says, no one takes it from me. Right? So, he's he's basically saying, "Don't, don't act like I'm not in control of this thing. I'm doing my father's will. I'm allowing you to do this. So I'm laying down my life, he said. And then he says, and also I have the power, I have authority to lay it down 
and I have authority to take it up again, pointing to his resurrection. He's telling them the story. I've come from the Father. I'm obeying the Father. What, I, what you see me doing, I see my Father do also. I am the Son of Man. I am the bread of life. I am divine. I am God. One day I'm going to lay my life down and I'm going to pick it up again. It, he, he said it over and over and over again. And I just hear John in the back of my mind. You must know these things so that you might believe. That's the whole point of the gospel of John. He's telling us over and over so that our footing might become firm as we stand for Christ. And that's an ongoing thing. So here Jesus makes it clear that no one can take his life from him forcibly. He has authority given by him, given to him by the Father to lay it down and to pick it up again. So the statement alludes to his impending death that he was going to the cross. And so we see the significance is his willing obedience. We're able to learn something from the Lord. These verses underscore Jesus' willingness to obey the Father's plan for the salvation of humanity. He acknowledged that his act of laying down his life is an expression of his love for the Father. Not only for the Father, but he's also expressing, expressing a love for us, right? So his submission to God's will is a central theme in the gospel that emphasizes perfect obedience. And then we have the big contrast. The big contrast, thieves and robbers, verses 8 and 10, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. And then 10a, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. So he said, in these verses, Jesus is bringing, shedding light on the contrast between himself, the good shepherd, and those who came before him. He, he, he's referring to them as thieves and robbers. These individuals are symbolic of false shepherds, false leaders, false teachers who claim to guide the people but do so with selfish and harmful intentions. The sheep representing the followers of Christ or believers do not listen to them. And so we see that in verse 8, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. And so here in verse 10a, Jesus further elaborates on the nature of these false shepherds. He characterized them as thieves with a threefold destructive agenda. What do they want to do? They want to steal. They want to Kill, and what's the last one? They want to <laughs> Y'all with me, right? Okay, let's try it again. Uh, he wants to kill, steal. He wants to kill, and he wants to So that's the point of the, the enemy before us. 
um, when, when I mean before us, in that those who are not doing things according to the plans of God, according to the word of God, God refers to them, any, anyone that exercises outside of Christ, he said that they're thieves and that they are robbers. Right? So, so the message here is warning against following false teaching on leaders who lead astray. Jesus, as the good shepherd, contrasts his own intentions, which are given, which are to give life abundantly with the destructive purpose of the false teacher shepherds. So believers are encouraged to discern the true voice of the good shepherd while at the same time being cautious. Right? So be cautious about anyone who seeks to harm rather than nurture. So, so, so we see this that there's an important, um, that there's a need to discern, right? And to see what is true and what is not by, by staying grounded in the truth and in the teachings of Christ. And then lastly, we have the big challenge, a hired hand in verses 12 and 13. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. Verse 13, he flees because he is, not, he is a hard hand and cares nothing for the sheep. So in these verses, Jesus employs a vivid metaphor of a hard hand and a shepherd to convey an essential lesson. The hired hand versus the shepherd. The hired hand is depicted as someone who is indifferent and lacks a deep commitment to the well-being of the sheep. They have no personal ownership or vested interest in the sheep. They are simply fulfilling a job. When danger symbolizes Symbolized by the wolf, we see the wolf there. When danger approaches, the hired hand leaves, abandons the sheep, and flees to save themselves. So there's a danger in indifference. And so we see that neglect that the hired hand will, will do. They do not genuinely care for the sheep, safety, spiritual growth, or needs. Their primary concern is their own well-being. The message here is a cautionary one for believers. It underscores the dangers of being spiritually indifferent, neglectful, or merely going through the motions of faith without genuine care for others. So such an attitude can leave fellow believers vulnerable to spiritual harm Again, symbolized by the wolf in this particular metaphor. So the encouragement, the encouragement for us is to be like caring shepherds for all that is here. We're to have a mind like a caring shepherd. Believers are encouraged to emulate the role 
of the caring shepherd, the good shepherd. Just as Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, believers should demonstrate a deep commitment to the spiritual well-being of others. So this includes providing support, guidance, protection, even when we're faced with challenges. And lastly, for application and reflection this week, I want to invite you to reflect on your relationship with the Lord, who is the Good Shepherd. And consider, if you would, this week, consider this week how you can model your life after the Lord in sacrificial love. That's my challenge. Whatever you're doing, all for the glory of Christ, out of a foundation of love. Let us follow the good shepherd.